This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Intelligence failures on January 6th. The FBI has been answering questions about that this week. One of the key questions was why FBI intelligence never made it to some of those who should have seen it. As to why the information didn't flow to all the people within the various departments that they would prefer, I, I don't have a good answer for that. In fact, FBI Director Chris Ray said, I didn't see that report, which was raw, unverified intelligence, until some number of days after the 6th. The former chief of the Capitol Police and the former sergeants-at-arms from the House and Senate said they never saw it either. Senator John Cornyn of Texas said it was reminiscent of what happened before 9-11. Seemed like there was a failure of imagination. Which suggests intelligence sharing may need to be reimagined again. And speaking about that imagination, a lot of people in Washington are worried that March 4th may be another day of chaos at the Capitol. We're going to take a look at what the intelligence says. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Tomorrow is March 4th. There is a great concern because of a QAnon conspiracy theory that former President Donald Trump is going to return to Washington, quote, triumphantly to resume control of the presidency and therefore the country. There's great concern on Capitol Hill that a lot of people will come here expecting Trump to do that. Now, we know that's not going to happen. The former president is going to remain the former president until at such time that perhaps he runs again and wins again. But he's not going to be president again tomorrow. And there are a number of different reasons for that. Most of it has to do with national security assets that have been put in place to make sure nothing like that happens. But here's the thing that's most concerning. There are those out there who actually believe he will and may come to Washington to try to witness that. And there's a lot of concern about what these folks might do when that doesn't happen. As a result, the national security community has been conducting daily calls for the last couple of weeks with the FBI, Metropolitan Police in Washington, the U.S. Secret Service, the Capitol Police, and all the key players. And they've been going on, as I mentioned, for about two weeks. They've been led by the White House National Security Council every evening. And what they've been talking about is what's the threat level? Is anyone seeing or aware of any threats? What's the general threat level for the National Capital Region? And early this morning, March 3rd, 2021, a joint intelligence bulletin was sent out to all these key players. And according to several sources, it mentioned a number of interesting things, and that included the possibility that these extremists could mobilize with little or no notice, and that this could be significant. 
And that is a legitimate concern because it's believed that many of these folks are now operating in encrypted chat rooms. And that means that authorities, by their own admission, have no visibility into these chat rooms or what's taking place as opposed to what was being planned out on the open internet and on Twitter and Parler before all of that activity was shut down after the Capitol riot. So there is a legitimate concern there. But on this program, we we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow, so it's really no point in talking about what might happen. What we can talk about is what happened on January 6th and attempts to make sure that it doesn't happen again on March 4th. And then there is May 20th as well. That's another date QAnon's put out there. But right now, we start this program with an exchange between Senator Dick Durbin and FBI Director Chris Wray. It happened on March 2nd during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on what happened with the intelligence on January 6th. There's a lot of confusion about the planning and coordination by federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies in the days leading up to the attack on the Capitol. I was surprised to learn the FBI did not issue a threat assessment before January 6th, especially because the FBI's Norfolk, Virginia field office had uncovered specific threats against members of Congress, maps of the tunnel system under the Capitol complex, and places to meet before traveling together to Washington. I was also surprised to hear Acting D.C. Metropolitan Police Department Chief Robert Conti say that his information was only conveyed to the MPD in an email at 7 p.m. the night before January 6th. Chief Conti acknowledged that the information was raw intelligence, but said he would think, quote, something as violent as an insurrection at the Capitol would warrant a phone call or something, close quote. So it comes down to the basic question of what the FBI knew, when they knew it, whether they shared it, why this didn't rise to the level of a threat assessment. So, Mr. Chairman, I welcome the question. Um, you touched on a number of points there. Um, so first, uh, let me say that we were in the period up leading up to January 6th, tracking a large amount of information about large numbers of people coming to participate in protests and about the potential for violence. Uh, the one specific piece of information that you referred to, the information from our Norfolk field office, has gotten a lot of attention. So this was a, uh, what's called a situational information report. It was prepared by our Norfolk field office, specifically for dissemination. It was, as you noted, uh, raw, unverified, uncorroborated information uh, that had been posted online. Uh, and my understanding was that that information was quickly as in within an hour, uh, disseminated and communicated with our partners, including the U.S. Capitol Police, including Metro PD, in when, not one, not two, but three different ways. When, can you be more sure. specific yep. on time? Three different ways. So first, there was uh, an email, as you said, to our Joint Terrorism Task Force, which includes, the Joint Terrorism Task Force includes task force officers specifically selected by their chiefs who participate on the Joint Terrorism Task Forces for the very reason to be that, that chiefs, that department's eyes and ears uh, so that they get the information real time, their departments do. So that's the first piece. Second, in addition to the email, verbally through the command post briefing that we had, because we had stood up command posts both in the Washington field office and at headquarters, uh, and those command posts included, again, representatives of the, of the relevant agencies, Capitol Police, MPD, et cetera, 
verbally the same information was walked through again. And third, in addition to the email, in addition to the verbal briefing at the command post, there was the information was posted on what we call LEAP, which is a law enforcement portal, which is made available to law enforcement, not just here in the National Capital Region, but all around the country. Now again, the information was raw, it was unverified. In a perfect world, we would have taken longer to be able to figure out whether it was reliable, but we made the judgment, uh, our folks made the judgment, uh, to get that information to the relevant people as quickly as possible, like I said, three different ways in order to leave as little as possible to chance. Now, I didn't see the report myself even until after the 6th, but, but the way in which it handled, at least as I understand it, uh, strikes me as consistent with our normal process. Director, I was surprised to see that reporting uh, that dozens of individuals on the terrorist screening database, also known as the terrorist watch list, traveled to D.C. in the days leading up to the attack. I would have expected the FBI's terrorist screening center to be aware of air travel by watch-listed individuals to the Washington, D.C. area. Did the TSC notice an uptick in travel by watch-listed individuals before January 6? If yes, what steps did they take? Or did the FBI take in more general terms to make sure other departments and agencies knew these dangerous individuals were on their way to the Capitol? So uh, when it comes to the, uh, the watch list, I think there's a couple of things I could say uh, here today. So one is I do know that in a number of instances there were individuals uh, on whom we had uh, previously predicated investigations uh, that we saw getting ready to potentially travel. And I'm, these are not large numbers, but a, a handful of people. Uh, and in those instances, uh, in a number of instances, we had agents uh, in their home states or home cities approach those individuals, interview them. Even if we didn't have a basis to charge somebody, it dissuaded a number of those people from traveling. I guess the second thing I would say is that sometimes there's a little confusion on the whole watch listing concept. There's a true no-fly list which is what applies to individuals who, uh, under the rules, provide a threat to aviation itself. And then there's what we sometimes refer to as selectees, which are individuals that can't necessarily be barred in the same way from traveling, but uh, in which there's notice given to the agents investigating those individuals, and that information is then passed on. So in, those, in a number of instances, that, that happened uh, in the period leading up to the 6th. I don't have numbers for you, though. I just have a minute left, but I want to address what I consider the next big lie after the lie that the president really won on November 3rd, President Trump. The next big lie appears to be the argument that somehow or another those were not Trump supporters who invaded the Capitol. It, was, it made the rounds on the Internet uh, right before they came into the building and has been gaining momentum ever since. I'd like to ask you, Director E. Do you agree that the Capitol attack involved white supremacists and other violent extremists? Uh, certainly the Capitol uh, attack involved violent extremists. Uh, as I said, we, the FBI, consider this a form of domestic terrorism. Uh, it included a variety of backgrounds. Uh, certainly there were quite a number, we're seeing quite a number as we're building out the cases on the individuals we've arrested for the violence quite a number uh, who what we would call sort of militia violent extremists. So we've got a number who self-identify with, you know, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, things like that. Uh, we also have a couple of instances uh, where we've already identified individuals involved in the criminal behavior who 
we would put in the racially motivated violent extremists who advocate for what you would call sort of white supremacy. So there have been some of those individuals as well. well One of the well, things that's happening as part of this is that as we build out the cases on the individuals when we arrest them for the violence, we're getting a richer and richer understanding of different people's motivations. But certainly, as I said, militia violent extremism, some instances of uh, racially motivated uh, violent extremism, uh, specifically advocating for the superior of the white race. Based on your investigation so far, do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly. Close to 300 people have been arrested, and authorities are looking for many more. Luckily, I think Darwin's theory is going to uh, aid and abet the law enforcement community for a lot of these folks who are streaming live while they were in the, the Capitol building itself. Douglas London, a retired CIA covert operative. These folks all did have electronic media with them. They were connected to cell towers by phone or computer, whatever it was. It's not going to be that hard to align what selectors were there, and law enforcement has every legal right to do that, with the folks that they're looking for. And, and again, as so many of these folks have posted across, across the boards. But one of the problems that authorities will run into, if they haven't already, is that after the first waves of those who exposed themselves on social media and didn't think about the consequences, many of those who weren't caught will change their tactics. It was a lot easier chasing the first sort of waves of people down with what you had in terms of tools, and then they started to recognize what the threats to them were. So you're going to see folks move underground, more to encrypted apps, and, and take care of what how they do. Again, I, I think as a matter of course for justice, we need to make a point and pursue all of these people that engaged in this horrendous act but I'm worried about those who are going to be driven underground as they will necessarily be and rightfully be where it will no longer be, God willing, popularly acceptable to be a white supremacist, to preach racism and hate. But those folks are going to be harder to find. It's not impossible to find these people, but London points out authorities might have to use tools that are not acceptable or legal to use in the U.S., which means there would have to be some legal change or at least a legal discussion about it. There are technical tools that we use in in our fight abroad that we're going to have to look at in the context of civil liberties, what is appropriate, because I think as we saw after 9-11, there are trade-offs. And sometimes I think we have to take care that we don't go too far because once we start compromising the number of civil liberties that we, we hold value to, which our adversaries you know, loathe and try to undermine, then we're sort of losing the battle from within. And speaking of 9-11. Uh, domestic terrorism um, in overall has been uh, a second-tier counterterrorism uh, priority in the United States uh, government. Tom O'Connor is a retired FBI special agent with expertise in counterterrorism, evidence collection, and domestic extremism. When threats come in uh, from someone who is in the domestic realm, uh, it is taken seriously, but isn't given the credence uh, in a lot of cases that it would be if it was a foreign threat. O'Connor says a part of the reason for that is after 9-11, a good amount of resources, money, etc., went towards international terrorism. And actually, the domestic terrorism definition uh, under federal statute is good, 
but there is no penalty that goes along with that actual um, violation. So um, that shows what level of uh, importance the U.S. government has given to domestic terrorism issues over the past 20 years. And I think that's one of the issues is uh, that it has had a lower status in, uh, in the threat uh, arena. Um, the information that comes into uh, intelligence agencies, the FBI, is clearly uh, um, important, obviously, and it is and is run up the flagpole. But uh, there are a lot of issues that come in when you get raw intelligence, and a lot, the main issues are: is there an actual uh, threat? Is there a location for that threat? A time for that threat? And uh, that raw intelligence is passed through the Joint Terrorism Task Force to the many agencies that are on board there. And whether that information gets to the highest points within those agencies uh, is, is uh, an issue that needs to be uh, looked into. Um, but again, the information that comes in is, is not always uh, given the level of importance because of the domestic uh, mm-hmm. nature of it. And, and okay. that's an unfortunate fact that I think needs to be changed. So now looking at that and you say something that needs to be changed, how do you envision briefly that change taking place? Is this a new layer layer of bureaucracy or is this a tweak or how does this get changed? I think the first thing that needs to happen is that there needs to be a penalty assigned to the definition of domestic terrorism under federal law. And currently there is not one. Uh, and Congress could come together and easily say that uh, if you use force or violence to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to influence the policy of a government, uh, that that is the definition of domestic terrorism and that there is actually a criminal uh, violation under U.S. code for that. Uh, I'm not thinking that uh, there needs to be uh, increased uh, uh, Um, surveillance activity. There doesn't need to be increase in authorities for investigation. Uh, I don't think that we should be um, designating groups uh, as uh, as terrorist groups as we do with the international realm. Uh, First Amendment uh, was not given the title of First Amendment because it was kind of important. It is something that we really need to continue to protect. And uh, by making a a law that says that um, domestic terrorism in and of itself is a crime, I think we're making uh, the citizens of the United States, the government of the United States, everyone realize that it needs to be taken very seriously. Um, you, when, if you uh, were to rob a store and uh, you were charged with robbery, uh, that's one thing. If you rob a bank and you're charged with bank robbery, that shows the seriousness of that uh, violation. And I think domestic terrorism needs to be taken seriously. So speaking of domestic terrorism itself, let's talk about who they are. What group or who composes, comprises this group of people called domestic extremists or domestic terrorists? Well, uh, they, and that's a great question. The, the most important part of that is that the, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies don't actually look at groups or ideologies. They're looking at the criminal violations that go along with that group or ideology. So um, groups themselves are not deemed uh, illegal in the United States, uh, nor do I think they should be on, on any of the ideologies that we're talking about. Um, but the groups that we saw uh, converging at the Capitol, the ideologies uh, were anti-government, um, you know, there were some white supremacists, the QAnon group that was 
uh, also fully in action there, uh, all came together for what was really a perfect storm of um, radical ideologies that, uh, that stormed the Capitol. Now, what took place on the mall itself? That's First Amendment protected activity, um, and that is not terrorism. What took place inside the U.S. Capitol is criminal violations. And if they reach to the point of uh, meeting that definition of domestic terrorism, then potentially uh, they should be charged with that. Um, so a lot of different groups came together, and you have to really look at the history of domestic extremism in the United States to see why we got to where we are today. And the 1990s had um, the rise of the patriot movement, the, the uh, militias, and it was done because of uh, the, the, uh, the perception that the government had overreached uh, there were authorities with things like Ruby Ridge and Waco. Uh, there was a bad economy that we were coming out of in the, in the 80s. Uh, so people were looking for somebody to blame for all of their problems. And the government most uh, times becomes that uh, that boogeyman that is is uh, is is called the uh, you know the bad guy. So um, the government anti-government extremists formed in the 1990s, and we're seeing the same thing happening now, where uh, the anti-government extremists. Uh, are also mixing with uh, white supremacists uh, and groups such as the Boogaloo Boys who are calling for a, a civil war. Uh, it is really a mix of, of uh, ideologies and conspiracy theories that brought us to where we are today on the, uh, the 6th. That's retired FBI Special Agent Tom O'Connor. Currently, he's a principal consultant at FedSquare Consulting, LLC. We don't know what's going to happen on the 4th of March because today it's the 3rd. But next week on the 10th of March, we'll take a look back at what happened or what didn't happen on the 4th of March. I know that may sound bizarre and strange, but that's what we'll do because a lot of moving parts are taking place behind the scenes as Washington and neighboring jurisdictions try to prepare to make sure that the nation's capital is not overrun by what took place on the 6th of January. But we also recognize as well that simply defending the Capitol on March 4th is not the end of this story. There's more going on. We mentioned earlier, May 20th is mentioned as another date. QAnon expects something significant to happen. Will its followers expect something as well to take place? We'll take a look at it on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskey, tango, Oscar, papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter, if you will. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security information, you can find us online at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Who was Sherry Crandall? My mother was a kind-hearted woman. Why was she brutally murdered inside the Maryland hospital where she worked? And how is the killer still on the loose? I am shocked that we haven't found the person. 
I'm Washington, D.C. crime reporter Paul Wagner. Join me as I investigate this cold case with an unforgettable twist, Murder in a Safe Place, Season 2 of the award-winning American Nightmare podcast series, a WTOP production. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press. 